Hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 10th chapter, verses 10 through 16. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of, our, of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And may the Lord bless this word to our understanding this morning. May he make it alive for us. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, these are harsh harsh words. They're even harsher when we delve into the meaning, what you're saying to the people that you're sending out to share the good news of your gospel with. Oh, dear Lord, I pray that you would give me this morning the ability to be true to your word, but at the same time to reflect, if possible, the angst, the compassion, the love, the lament that is in your heart when you say these words, that they might truly be for us and for those who hear words of woe, that we will understand what that means. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, I have a dilemma this morning, um, and it has to do with the nature of the text that is before us. I'm an expositional preacher, so we make our way through Scripture. I preach on everything. I do not selectively ignore or um, not choose the passages that are difficult to discuss. And the, 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 the dilemma I have is this. If you were here last week, you know at the very end of the message, I, wrote, I read a passage from First Peter because, after all, we're talking about Jesus sending out these 72 disciples into the land around him to prepare the way for him. And um, so Peter gives us a, 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 a desire to share the good news with everybody. He says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. But then he says these words at the end of that verse so often let, left out. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now I don't have a problem this morning with doing it with respect either to you or to the text. I will respect the text and to the best of my ability, exposit it in a straightforward but honest manner, but I don't know about the gentleness part. How does one bring these words in a gentle and a kind way? And yet, if I water them down, if I make them less than they are, if I try to sanitize these words, as so many have done, then I abrogate my responsibility as a minister of the gospel. So I think the secret, at least the secret that I am going to pursue, is actually in the word that Jesus uses, the word woe. We'll talk about it later, and I'll explain what it means. But basically, in that word, it's not just a statement of judgment. It is not just a, a, a gleeful statement that, oh, man, you're going to get what you deserve. There is angst in that word. There is a lament. There is a sorrow. There's a compassion in that word. And you see, it's not a word of judgment, it's a word of warning. And in that sense, these are words of grace, offering a second chance to people who don't deserve a second chance, because there's still time until there is no time. 
So Jesus is preparing these 72 disciples to go out into the areas around where he is to prepare the way for him. And, and towards that end, he, he has been uh, explaining, giving them their marching orders, telling them what it's going to be like. He's given them a couple of extraordinary metaphors about how they're going to go forward, that the, the harvest is huge and, and is ripe and ready to be harvested, but there are not enough laborers to do it. Not only will it be difficult, it's going to be dangerous, if not life threatening because he's sending them out as lambs into the midst of wolves. And then he begins to tell them about how they'll go with none of the creature comforts. And all of that together is to tell these men that if you go out on your own power, you're going to fail. You're going to have to go out on my power because I'm the power behind this. And I'm the one who is going to use this as a formula whereby the kingdom of God is going to be established in this world. He talks about peace, and that's a vital part of this because it's not peace in the sense of absence of conflict. It is peace in the sense of a reconciliation with God. Shalom is peace with God. And so he says, you're the peacemakers. I'm sending you out as the missionaries of peace. And the whole formula upon which this is going to be built is when a missionary of peace shares the message of peace with sons and daughters of peace, introducing them to the Prince of Peace. That has been the winning formula for the church, for the kingdom, ever since Jesus stated it. Now, towards the end of the message, we we saw yet last week um, how these people were to respond, how, how these men were to respond to the places that they went, the towns who received them. They're to make personal relationships with the families and the towns who received them. Their peace would settle upon that town. But then at the very end, he, he started to talk about, well, if they don't receive you, if they don't receive your peace, let your peace return to you. And that kind of sets the stage for what he's going to say this morning. The flip, the flip side of this great and wonderful news is the harsh reality that faces those who reject it. So with that said, let's jump into our text. We have quite a bit of it, starting at the 10th verse. Jesus says, But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, Jesus instructs his disciples when there is a town that does not receive them, he tells them that I want you to perform a a, a symbolic gesture. I want you to go out into the streets and I want you to point to your feet and wipe all the dust off of that feet and say, I wipe this off sort of with indignation Um, And then leave that town away. Now, that was a very well-known gesture for the Jews. In fact, faithful Jews, whenever they passed through a Gentile or a Samaritan village, they was almost as if they considered the dust of the streets to be defiling. And so they would do this regularly when they passed through a Gentile or a Samaritan area and they got back to their own territory. They would wipe off of their shoes as if there was some contamination there and shake out their garments to get rid of all the dusts. Now, it, it was a gesture of indignation for sure. It was a gesture of cleansing that which symbolically they felt defiled them. But it was also a gesture of separation. That's what's going to be important this morning. It it is a separation. It is a cutting off. It, It was as if to say, I am part of God's people. I am the chosen one, Jew speaking. And saying that you are not and the very dust of your town has defiled my feet. So as being someone outside of the covenant, as being someone who's a pagan or a Samaritan, I shake the dust off of my feet. Jesus is asking his disciples to make that gesture when the good news of peace is rejected. So with that understanding of that gesture, let's go back and take a look at what Jesus says. He says, whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you. We've already seen that, if you will, just going back a couple of verses when they were going through that Samaritan town, you remember, and Jesus sent messengers before him and the Samaritan town says, thank you, but no thanks, just keep on going. And, and there was no shaking the dust off, or at least we didn't get reported that that was so, but nonetheless, 
It was an example of what Jesus means when an entire town refuses to listen to the message that he is sending them out with. He says, I want you to, uh, I, I want you to, to, to do this gesture. Now, it, it, we'll get, when we get down to the 16th verse, we'll see that, that just to refuse them, it is, it's a lot more involved with that. Because in other words, to refuse them is to refuse their message. To refuse their message is to refuse the one who sent the message. To refuse the one who sent the message is to refuse the Son of God who had come to save them and He's the only one through whom salvation is going to be found. To refuse Him is to refuse God's plan of redemption. To refuse God's plan of redemption is to stand on your own before the wrath and the judgment of God. So there's an awful lot more going on here than just a refusal. But I want you to see something else here. Very important point. Notice the way that Jesus phrases this. He doesn't say that whatever town rejects you, go into the streets and do this. He says, whatever town doesn't receive you. And there's a big difference there, folks. There are millions and millions of people around the the world who have not actively, consciously rejected Jesus. They, they just don't have anything to do with them. There are other things that are more important. They, they, they know the gospel. They've heard it. But, you know, that's for someone else. It's not for me. And so, therefore, there's no animosity. There's no rejection. It's just that you haven't received him. Well, you see, as far as Jesus is concerned, there's no middle ground. There's no neutrality. There's no indifference. There's no just simply having nothing to do with it, and that's perfectly fine. Jesus is the one you must decide who you will, how you will see this Jesus. You cannot simply ignore him. To ignore him, to not receive him, is to reject him. And that's what he is saying here. This town, by not receiving your word, has rejected your word. So look what he says for them to do. He says, I want you to go out into the streets and make this gesture. This is public. He wants them to go into the most public place in that particular town and say, we're done with you. Okay? We're, we're wiping the dust off of our feet. We're making this gesture against you. Now, that's very interesting, I feel. Because in modern evangelical circles, that is not allowed. I mean, Jesus is commanding his disciples, if you are an evangelist worth your salt, if you are going to tell the full orb gospel, if you are going to be true to what I am sending and the people don't receive it, to go your way and say nothing is not acceptable. You must tell them if you care for them, if you love them, if you're compassionate towards them, you must warn them. Of the wrath to come. But we don't talk about wrath. We don't talk about judgment. We don't even like to talk about sin. And we certainly don't talk about hell. But here Jesus commands his evangelists that if they refuse to accept me, then warn them of what they are facing. It just simply follows. And then he goes on and he tells that that, um, gesture. Now, there's something I want you to see about that gesture. As I said earlier, this is a gesture that Jews quite often did, but Jesus is not telling these disciples to do that gesture before Gentiles and Samaritans. He's saying if a Jewish town, mainly these towns now that he's sending them out are Jewish town, notwithstanding that there might be a Samaritan household or a, a, a Gentile household that they are in because we talked about those dietary laxing of the dietary laws last week. But for the most part, he is sending these men into Jewish towns. And so what he is saying is the devastating statement. If you refuse the message that I have given you, then you go out and you make a gesture publicly to that town that you are in danger of being cut off. You're in danger of not being within the covenant, but being outside of the covenant. This is not unique to this passage. I'm not just reading this into it. This is scattered throughout the Gospels. Jesus warning 
the so-called religious elite of the day, the people who thought that they were God's people, the people who considered their righteousness to be all that was necessary to make them right with God, he warned them over and over again, your righteousness is not good enough. And if you reject the great gift that I am here to offer you, then you will face the wrath of God on your own. In Matthew, after Jesus healed the servant of the centurion, this is what he said. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Paul said it to the Jews in Corinth when he's trying to share the gospel and the Jews in that city began to revile him and to impede him. This is what he says in Acts 18. And when they, the Jews, opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. A shaking out of the garments is the same kind of a gesture. In other words, what the Jews were doing is what so many people do today, what I did when I was a younger man. Anyone who's been raised in the church and knows the gospel and has rejected it or refused to accept it, these Jews are sitting on a, on a branch connected to the trunk and they are vividly, actively sawing that branch off between them and the trunk, thinking that the trunk is going to fall and they are going to stay up, but the exact opposite is going to happen. Jesus says, if you are not part of me, you, you will be removed, as he said in, verse, in chapter 15 of John. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Even John the Baptist, as he was introducing the coming of Jesus, made these kinds of statements to the Jews. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, I know those sound like harsh words. I didn't write them. Jesus said them. But they are words that are said with the deepest compassion and a desire that you would listen to those words and not suffer that fate. This is not done with glee. There's no happiness here. It's a lament. It's a desire that you listen to it and say, no, I'm not going to go that route. Well, for those who were continued to be recalcitrant, Jesus says, nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. The way the kingdom of God has come near to them is because the king of the kingdom has sent his messengers with the message of peace. And whether you reject it or not, whether you accept it or not, whether you believe in it or not, doesn't change the fact that it's true. Unfortunately, in our culture now, everybody thinks their truth is relative and it's their truth and it's just as valid as anyone else's truth. So if my truth says there is no hell, there is no judgment, God is going to love me forever. Man, it doesn't matter how I live. I don't have to accept Jesus. I can be any way I want to and, and, and God is still going to love me. That's my truth. Well, the fact that it's your truth does not mean that the kingdom of God has not come near to you. Because when the kingdom of God comes near to you, my friend, you are culpable for that. You are responsible. You are accountable to the gospel. Whether you reject it or not does not change the truth of it. It doesn't change the fact that it impacts and affects you because it is God's truth. Well, after he makes this statement, Jesus goes on in the 12th verse and what can only be called a stunning statement of judgment. He says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom and for that town. I tell you is sort of an abbreviated truth formula, like verily I say to you, perhaps not with the same emphasis, but certainly close to it. Jesus wants you to pay attention to what he's getting ready to say. And when he talks about that day, even though he doesn't specify which day it is, he is talking about the day of judgment that becomes clear a little later on. And so he says, on the day of judgment, it will be more bearable for 
a for Sodom than it will be for a town that rejects the good news that I send them. So what does he mean by Sodom? What, 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 what's the significance of bringing that city into this? Well, I think you know Sodom represents certain things, even to people who don't know Scripture. It is iconic as far as, as moral, egregious moral sin, licentiousness, drunkenness, homosexuality, um, the, the aberration of, of sexual um, activity. Also, Ezekiel tells us because they hoarded everything that they had for themselves and didn't care about the poor and the needy. So they're very iconic as far as just egregious moral sin, but they're also iconic for the wrath and judgment of God because God poured his wrath down upon Sodom and Gomorrah and and wiped them out completely and totally in an act of his judgment. But I think one of the most extraordinary things, and I don't want you to miss this, it's a pagan city. It's a Gentile city. It's a city outside the covenant. It's a city of people who laugh and, and, and thumb their noses at God. I mean, have nothing to do with them. And here Jesus is actually making the statement that those of you who hear the good news, who hear the gospel and do not receive it, it will be more bearable for Sodom in that day than it will be for you. Oh my goodness, those are unbelievable words. Brings out a couple of things that we should see. First of all, it tells us that not every sin will be punished the same way in the hereafter. Now, in our governmental, forensic, uh, judicial systems, our civil systems, we expect that. We recognize that when we set apart uh, laws and then the, the penalty for breaking that law, that there are different severities of those laws and therefore different punishments. For instance, the punishment for a traffic doubt, a violation is less than the punishment of, say, um, um, shoplifting, uh, and which is less than the punishment of grand larceny, which is less than the punishment for premeditated murder. Punishments will range everywhere from a small fine to life in prison or the death penalty, depending on where it is. It also matters who you sin against. If I hit a co-worker, the penalty is less than hitting a policeman, which is the lesser penalty than if I hit the President of the United States. It matters who you sin against. And so therefore, there are, we expect that. We, we wouldn't consider it to be fair in our world if the punishment didn't match the crime. But for some reason, people think that's not the way it is with God's punishment and judgment. Either they wish it away altogether and say a loving God would never punish anyone, at least not in the way that it is stated in Scripture, so therefore they discount a very large part of what Jesus has to say and the warnings of that you do not want to go to this place. Or they, they wish it away entirely, or, or, the, or they, they want to think that, well, everybody gets punished the same. Well, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying it would be more bearable for this pagan country than it will be for you. That means there's, there's, there's lesser and greater punishments when that actually gets there. So why? Why would these cities, why would they have a harsher judgment than a a, a Gentile pagan city that was egregiously known for the wickedness of its sin? What is it that causes that? Brothers and sisters, this is where I'd just like to grab some people with my words and shake them up and say, would you please, please listen to these words Don't ignore them. You are judged on the amount of light that you are given. The closer you are to the gospel, the more times you have heard it. The more times that the light of Jesus Christ has been shined on you, the more times that people have told you about the the judgment of sin and the necessity of having Jesus as a Savior, the closer you have been, like these cities that are getting ready to hear the good news, the closer you have been, the more culpable You are. Jesus puts it this way. 
when he talks about the reason for this harsher judgment. He says, therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Did you hear what he said? Did you hear that to not receive him? I'm not talking about being a good person. I'm not talking about having a a pious life. I'm not talking about all the nice things you do. I'm talking about receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Your punishment will be greater than the punishment of those wicked and evil people who lived in Sodom that day of judgment. This is harsh words, I know. They are words that need to be heeded. Um, Jesus goes on then to talk about some specific cities, um, naming them by name of cities who have done just that, failed to receive him. Look in the 13th verse. Woe to you, Chorazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. He lists two cities that he had done quite a bit of work on. Now, now I just want to once again point your attention to that word woe. Because I know, trust me, I know I've been in the pews. I've heard messages like this. And I know that after a while you start to squirm. And after a while it just gets extremely uncomfortable. I want you to recognize what that word woe means. It is a word that is laced with compassion and angst. It is a broken heartedness. It is a word of warning. It is not a word of judgment. To say woe to Chorazan does not mean, like he said to Nazareth, that the judgment has already occurred on you and it's all over. What he's saying is, Chorazan, please, will you pay attention to what I have done and said? And don't ignore the good news that I bring you. Don't ignore what I'm going to do for you. Don't ignore the fact that you cannot save yourself. You can't stand before God on your own goodness. You need a savior. Please listen to me. It is actually words of grace. It's words of, 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 of warning and, and words of mercy to give a second chance where no second chance is deserved. So he calls out these two cities. Woe to Chorazan. Interesting. That city where many great and mighty works were made we know absolutely nothing about. Some people think it was a little northwest of Capernaum and therefore part of the general commerce of that area, which was supposedly very prosperous. But no one knows for sure. Isn't that interesting that some of the most mighty, powerful works that our Lord worked were in towns that we don't even know where they were? You know, these gospels that we have, they're like the tip of the iceberg. And I think that when John said that if everything that Jesus did was written down in books there, there wouldn't be enough room in the whole world to hold them. I think that's what he's saying. To to try to define Jesus with four little books of the gospel is like trying to define the beaches of Florida with four grains of sand. You just can't do it. You know, it just doesn't capture it. But that's the way it is. We know almost nothing about Coruscant. We know a little bit more about Bethsaida. But really, we don't know where it is, where it was. Many people think it was, and most likely it was, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, right when the Jordan enters into the Sea of Galilee. But many people maintain that it was a suburb of Capernaum. But once again, we don't know what, they, what Jesus did there. What we know about Bethsaida is that Peter and Andrew and Philip and maybe James and John came from Bethsaida. That was their hometown. Which tells us something, doesn't it? It tells us that even though the whole town did not receive Christ, there were those who did. It was possible to be saved from Bethsaida. Because Peter and and, uh, Philip and Andrew were. But for some reason, the rest of these people were not. How is that possible? that they would be exposed to so many beautiful works of Jesus and still 
not accept him as Lord. Well, Jesus goes on to say that if the mighty works that had been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. Well, Tyre and Sidon are two cities on the coast just north of Israel. They were Phoenician cities, and they were known for their prosperity, where Sodom was known for their egregious moral sin. Tyre and Sidon, of course, were sinful places, as any very prosperous metropolis will be, but they were known for their commerce. The Phoenicians were great sellers and shipwrights, and and so they had a tremendous amount of business going on, and it was business first and religion second. We're, We're interested in making a buck, and they certainly did, and that's what Tyre and Sidon represent, people who just aren't interested in God whatsoever, and yet Jesus says, It will be less difficult. It will be more bearable in the day of judgment for them than it will be for you. Because if the mighty works that I did in you had been done in them, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. Most of you know sackcloth is just just that. It's a sack (laughs) made out of very uncomfortable material. The short hairs of camels, I am told. And people would put that on specifically to hurt themselves, specifically to be uncomfortable. It was a sign of penitence, of a mourning over sin. And to put ashes on you or to sit in ashes was a sign of mourning and put them together. That's exactly what that is. Now, there is an Old Testament precedent, excuse me, for what Jesus is saying. Remember the story of Jonah? Remember when Jonah ran to the other end of the world? What he was trying to do was escape being sent to Nineveh because he was told that he was to preach the gospel to Nineveh and he didn't want to preach the gospel because he wanted them to be punished. But God would have, no, would have nothing to do with it. So when, when Jonah did end up preaching the gospel or the gospel as it was at that time, this is what happened. Prince of of, uh, of, of Nineveh responded, or the king did. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And then he told the rest of the people of Nineveh, you must do the same. And if we do this, maybe, just maybe, the God of Jonah will relent and not destroy us, which is exactly what happened. So Jesus is using that as a backdrop to what he is saying. That hearing the gospel, hearing the good news, seeing the mighty works, having it proclaimed to you. If they had been benefited by that, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. But you didn't. So therefore, it will be more bearable for them in the time of judgment than from you, for you. And what, of course, Jesus is reiterating here is that the reason for your harsh judgment, the reason that these Jewish towns who go to synagogue every week, who read their, 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 their Old Testament, who are trying to keep up with all of these rules of the Pharisees, the reason that they are going to be judged more harshly is because they did not receive God's plan of redemption in Jesus Christ. And they had been shared more light than the people in Tyre and Sidon. And therefore, their judgment would be harsher. He goes on to talk about Capernaum. He separates Capernaum out because Capernaum is, after all, a very special place. It was the place where Jesus had his headquarters. And perhaps the most disturbing woe, even though he doesn't use the word, is given to Capernaum. He says, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Now, we don't know what happened in Corazan or in Bethsaida, but we do know a lot of what happened in Capernaum. I mean, we have seen so many of the miracles that Jesus worked were worked in that town. Multiple people were, uh, had demons cast out. Peter's mother-in-law was healed from that fever there, and the people lined up in the streets all night long to be healed. The servant of that centurion that Jesus healed from afar was done there. The paralytic was healed and given the ability to walk again. Matthew, the tax collector, was converted, which is a miracle in and of itself. The woman with the flow of blood was healed. 
Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead just off the coast. There was the miraculous catch and the calming of the wind and the waves. Those are amazing miracles. They had every single reason to believe in Jesus, and yet they didn't. Jesus says, you think. You're so arrogant that you think you'll be exalted to heaven. Why do you think they thought that? What was it about what they had, uh, uh, had done that made them think that they would be exalted to heaven in and of themselves? Well, first of all, I think the Jews in general in those days, and we've seen that, were, were religiously arrogant. They were God's people, and they thought that because they were God's people, that it really didn't matter what they thought, what they said, the way they acted, or what they believed. That they were in, you know, they were the sons and daughters of Abraham. And of course, we read from John the Baptist how that is not going to, to be the case. So, yes, there was an arrogance just based on who they were, but I think there was also an arrogance based on their whole idea of salvation. It was not through their relationship with God or, or actually, actually having a love relation or a faith relationship with Him. It was rather through my own good deeds, my own good works, and the traditions of the elders and keeping all these things straight. So, their own piety. I think, gave them a belief that they would be the ones to be exalted to heaven. But I also think it was just the very presence of Jesus himself. And this is a little bit more of a nuance, but I I think it also is true. I think the very fact that Jesus made Capernaum his headquarters. I mean, what would you think? If Jesus came in here and he made this church his headquarters... And he goes from here and starts working all kinds of mighty miracles. We would say, whoa, you know, we're something. Jesus has come here to make his headquarters. So obviously that must mean we are righteous and holy. And so therefore we don't need to listen to his message. We don't need to respond to his message. And we don't need to receive him as Lord and Savior of our lives. And that was a critical and a crucial mistake for these And so he goes on and he pronounces the woe on Capernaum. Will you be exalted to heaven? No, that's a rhetorical, a hypothetical question. You will be brought down to Hades. Now, Hades was the god of the underworld to the Greeks and later on became known as the underworld itself. And in their mythology, when you went into Hades, all people died and went to Hades. And that's where the judgment would occur, you know, ending up in either reward or punishment based on whether or not you were a good person. That's not the way that Jesus is using the word Hades. He's using it in the context of hell, of a place of abandonment, a place of separation, a place of darkness, a place of suffering. And he uses that in various sundry different ways. He talks about the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He talks about separation from God. He talks about the Gehenna where the the flame doesn't go out and, and and the worm doesn't die. I mean, he uses several very graphic pictures to talk about the judgment that God will bring upon those who are not perfect according to his standards. And Hades is just one of them. And so what he says here is devastating. Because he says, these people with whom I walked and talked and lived and worked all of these miracles, they will not be exalted to heaven. They will be brought down to hell. That's the harshness of what Jesus has to say. So what do you think was the nature of their transgression? You know, there's something about um, Capernaum that I think we ought to see. And and that's that when you read back and you see the time in all the Gospels of the time that Jesus spent in Capernaum, you you, you won't see that open animosity that happened elsewhere. Remember in Nazareth where they, they wanted to push him off the cliff and there was a mob that wanted to kill him? When he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to face a variety of mobs that are going to pick up stones to stone him. But you, you, you won't read that in Capernaum. 
In fact, except for the religious leaders who were always grumbling about Jesus, they seemed to be enamored with him. They came out in droves. They listened to him. They couldn't believe the way that he spoke. They loved his miracles. When Jesus would go across to the eastern side of the lake, they would run around the top of it just so they could be close to him. We don't see that open animosity. So once again, we see the severity of the sin of rejection, or to put it as Jesus put it, not receiving the good news that he is the savior of the world, that he is the one that God sent to atone for your sins. And that if you don't, then the sin that you commit is the greatest sin that you can commit. Well, then the last verse, Jesus uses a familiar formula, kind of brings it full circle. If you remember what he's done here is he starts out talking to these, these 72 men that he's going to send out. And then he, when he gets to the towns they're going to, he kind of broadens that to talk about the family and how that personal relationship needs to be with that family. And then now he's broadened it even farther to talk about whole towns and the way that they should respond to those towns. And now he's going to bring it down to be a very personal statement directed squarely at you. And squarely at me. He says this in the formula. He says, the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Now, he uses a formula that is quite familiar, is used in all four of the Gospels. Jesus regularly spoke this way. What he is trying to do is establish a logical progression of revelation. Matthew puts it this way. Whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. Mark puts it this way. Whoever receives one such child in my name, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. John puts it this way, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receive me, receives me receives the one who sent me. So you can see that this was a common formula that Jesus used in a variety of ways, but here Luke brings it to us in a decidedly negative sense. He starts out by making a statement that he pretty much made in all of them, that the one who hears you hears me. And basically what he is saying is if that, if, 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 if that expositor of my word, if that evangelist, if the person who is sharing the gospel is faithfully recounting the words that I have given them, then to hear their words is tantamount to hearing my words. People say to me on occasion, all Jesus has to do is appear to me and tell me himself and I'll believe in him and follow him. No, you won't. You'd find another reason not to believe in him and deny what you actually saw. Because Jesus says if you reject his words, that those who come and faithfully exposit his words, being careful to try to capture the fullness of those words, you might as well be talking to Jesus himself because it's the same Thing. So you cannot hide behind the fact that Jesus himself has not come down and told you these things. If I faithfully use those words of Jesus and report them to you, it's exactly as if Jesus was here himself. They carry the same weight and also carry the same culpability as far as your concerns. The words are alive and they're not mine. And notice that I use that word faithfully Sort of emphatically, there are a lot of false teachers and false evangelists out there that will take the words of Jesus and corrupt them. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the faithful reporting of the words. It is exactly as far as the power of those words as if Jesus himself was there. So if you reject the words of the messenger, Jesus goes on and says, you reject me. The one who rejects you rejects me. Now, this is a totally different story. It's one thing to reject me. You don't like me. You don't like the way that I speak. You don't like the words that I use. And so, therefore, I have nothing to do with you. But if the words that I speak are indeed the words of Jesus and you reject those words, then you've rejected Jesus. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us. 
when we teach evangelism to budding evangelists and tell them what's going to happen when they go out there, it's not an if you're going to be rejected, it's when. You, you, you will be rejected. That's what Jesus is doing here. He is telling the 72 that you will be rejected. There will be towns that do not receive you at all. And he's telling them what to do. So they're not rejecting you. They're not rejecting your words. They're rejecting Jesus and rejecting Jesus' words. Now that puts things in a completely different light. It is one thing to reject me. It is another thing to reject the only one who can save you. The only one who can atone for your sins. The only one who can, can restore relationship and reconciliation with the Father. There's only one who can do that, and that is Jesus. And if you reject the words of Jesus and his messenger, you reject him. We go from bad to worse, but the worst is yet to come. Jesus says, the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. To reject Jesus is to reject God. After all, Jesus is God in the flesh. We know that. And Jesus said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said to the, to the Pharisees in Jerusalem, I and the Father are one. The writer of Hebrews says that he's the radiance of God's glory, the very imprint of his nature. Colossians said in him the fullness of the deity was pleased to dwell. Jesus is indeed God. And if you reject Jesus, you reject God. And my dear friends, that is spiritual suicide. To reject God and to reject his plan of redemption for you is not only spiritual suicide, forgive the word, it's spiritual stupidity. It's blindness and that is the exact thing that Jesus is trying to avoid happening to you when he says, woe to you. My application this morning is very simple. I have two of them. I'll make them short. I have two appeals. Jesus was talking both personally and to a people group, so I have two appeals. I have appealed to the individual who has not yet received Jesus as Savior, and I have an appeal to the country in which we live. First, the country. Most of you know that I'm a student of history. I've always loved history, and I've studied it all through my educational process, both from a world history standpoint, from a philosophy history, and from a religious history, both the history of the world and the history of this country. And I can make an, a, a statement about this country that I can't make about any other nation that has ever existed in the history of humanity that I can find. Maybe you know of one. That it is absolutely and positively unique. Now, I am not talking politically. I am not talking about American exceptionalism. What I am talking about is the way that this country was founded. There is no other country that I know of that was founded by Puritan, conservative, reformed, believing, committed Christians who were looking for a place that they could worship their God as he should be worshipped in spirit and in truth. No other country can point to that. Now, there's been plenty of revivals. God called his nation of Israel out of Egypt and made them his own. I'm not saying that this country is the only country that is God's. What I am telling you is that the degree of light that has been shined on this country is amazing. No other country has a constitution where the form of government was written out by believing, dedicated Christian men. Now, not all of them were, but don't let the historical revisionists change your opinion. These were God-fearing, Christ-loving Christians who wrote the Constitution that still is holding on by a thread in this country. This country has had the gospel shared with it in more ways and to a larger degree than any other country on the face of the planet. We have so many Bibles, so many translations, so many commentaries, so many good, enriched, depth, in-depth books on Theology and Christology and Soteriology from the, in the English language, it surpasses any other language that is out there. So if what we read is true, 
If what we just discovered is true here, that, that Jesus will hold the towns of Chorazan and Bethsaida and Capernaum more culpable for what they have learned because of the light that has been shined upon them, what on earth is the judgment for a nation like this? When it becomes apostate. When it turns its back on the very fundamental principles upon which it was founded. When it surgically removes God from government, from politics, from education, from every aspect of their life and is in the process now of making it a moral uh, uh, abomination to them. What happens when God removes his hand of blessing from a nation like that? Well, if we listen to what he said to Korazan and Bethsaida, I think that we can clearly say, woe to you, America. For if the mighty works had been done that were done in you in Tyre and Sidon of old, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes, and yet it will be more bearable for them in the judgment than for you who have been shown so much light. But I want to reiterate something. These are words of woe, folks. They're not words of final judgment. There's still time while there's time. That's why Freddie read you that passage in the moment in the word from Second Chronicles. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. Notice that he says, if my people will humble themselves and pray, if the churches will turn back to God, and if they will stand up in the craziness of the world that we involved with and call evil, evil, call stupid, stupid, call wrong, wrong, call righteousness, righteousness. And God promises that he will hear from heaven. And maybe as the king of Nineveh said. Maybe just maybe he will relent. And not destroy this country. But my primary appeal this morning is to the individual. It's to the individual who has been shared the light of Christ. Especially those of you who have grown up in churches. Especially what we call pew-sitters who've gone to church all your life. And yet you have never ever received Jesus as Lord of your life. Oh, you're interested. You're enamored with him. You go every Sunday. You think that it's good. You think that it's right. But you have never given him your life. You have never accepted him. Received him as Lord and Savior. And we have learned that if you don't receive Jesus, there's no middle ground. You've rejected him. It's to you that I speak. Jesus says, woe to you. But he says it with compassion and love and angst. It's a lament. It's, I don't want the judgment. And Jesus knows about judgment. If there's anyone that knows about the wrath of the holiness of God, it would be Jesus. And Jesus says, I do not want that to happen to you. So therefore, I'm here to tell you, to warn you. And unfortunately, people say to me, you know, I hear you, but that's your opinion. It's not mine. Yeah, you say that, but you know something? I have a real special relationship with God. Now, you know, you say that about Jesus, and that's not the Jesus that I see. I don't see a Jesus that's going to have any kind of judgment. I mean, what, what do I need that for? I, I, I have a very special relationship with God, and it's precious to me, no matter what you say. Well, if you say that, or you say anything even close to that, anything but a full compliance with what Scripture says, then I ask you, on what do you base your claim? What authority do you base it on? What is your validation of that? Because I can tell you it's not logic, nor is it Scripture. Because logic tells us of a different God than that. Logic will tell you that if God is God, my dear friend, he's sovereign. If God is God, he makes the rules. You don't. 
You don't decide how you will approach Him. He decides in His mercy and grace how He will bring you to Himself. To Moses, He said, Moses, take the sandals off your feet because you cannot approach Me unless you do so because the ground upon which you walk is holy ground. To the priest in the temple, He said, sanctify yourself, cleanse yourself, and then you can come into the Holy of Holies. If you don't, if you offer Me unauthorized fire, there will be terrible consequences to that. God is the one who says, this is the way that you will approach Me. This is how you worship. This is how you will be saved. Not you. And my dear friend, it does not matter whether it's precious to you or not. What matters is, is it precious to God? Because He's the one that controls the gate of His kingdom. So it, it, it has nothing to do with, with, with logic, and it certainly doesn't have anything to do with Scripture. It's as we read earlier in that moment in the Word. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no God. Earlier in Isaiah, he said, I am the Lord. I'm sorry, I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory. I give to no other. And as we said earlier, Jesus has already affirmed in many ways that he is God in the flesh. He says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So scripture does not sustain a belief that You can have relationship with Jesus Christ or with God outside of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he doesn't say that with with glee, with with happiness, if if you reject him. He, he, He doesn't pronounce woes for any other reason but the mercy of giving you a second chance. Let's consider it this way, if you will. Consider that from all eternity past, God has known that we would need a Savior. And it was decided amongst the Godhead that it would be the second member who would, when the time was right, humiliate himself beaud human comprehension, condescend to be a human, to take on the attributes of humanity, to walk in our midst, to be a humble man, to be spit upon, to be laughed at, to be rejected. To be beaten and then nailed to a cross with our sins, the sins of those who trust Him upon Him. And then those sins atoned for by the most horrible, uh, imaginable suffering that He would go through. All so we could be forgiven. All so that we could have righteousness. All so that we could be in the presence and be reconciled to His Father. And all of that has been God's plan. And it is explained to you and you say, thank you but no thanks. What kind of judgment do you think That deserves. Well, the writer of Hebrews tells you, please listen to these words. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But I will remind you, my dear friends, that these are words of woe, not words of final judgment. It's not over till it's over. not finished till it's finished. There's still time until there is no time. You have a heart. You have a mind. You have a soul. You have a will. I have presented as faithfully as I know how the words of Jesus to you. And it doesn't matter how many times you reject that. Jesus keeps giving new chances. And you have a new chance today. If every time Jesus says, woe to you, judgment awaits you. If every time he said that was a final judgment, I wouldn't be here because I rejected the gospel time after time after time, year after year after year. I'm one of those 
who turned from the light and sought the darkness. I'm one of those who gave it up. I have no right to be here. I have no right to be saved. I am here because of the mercy and the grace of a God who would not let me go. And he offers you that chance this morning. These are not words of judgment. They're words of grace and mercy. No matter how many times you've rejected him, turn to him even now. Give him your heart. Give him your soul. Because there's still time. Until there's no time. Let's pray. My dear Lord, um, I know that your word never returns void. And I pray that even though I'm unable to share these words without getting somewhat animated, I pray that the words themselves are what will be resident in people's hearts and minds. That you have given us such powerful woes, such stunning judgments. And the reason you have done so is because you love us. The reason you have done so is because you are warning us of a judgment that is inevitable if we do not accept the amazing, magnificent gift that you have offered us, the gift of peace with God. It is my prayer to Lord, and you know this from my heart, that those who hear this message, this word, whether now or later on, will come to know you, put their trust and their faith in you, and that they can say then, my relationship with you is special because his word tells me so. In Christ's name we pray, amen.